We're going to take your Bibles and with me, and we're still in 1 Timothy. This is going to be our last week in 1 Timothy. So Mark mentioned at the outset, he's going to be preaching the next couple of weeks, um, as we anticipate baby coming. He's going to be preaching the next couple of weeks on worship and prayer. And then we have a couple other things coming your way in early July. Um, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive back in. We'll continue talking about some things related to, to the church. Um, particularly at the end of July, we'll talk about the ordinances. We'll talk about some things as we lead back up into the fall um, and get back into the swing of things. Summer is obviously a time where quite a few people are traveling, and so um, we're typically lighter on numbers, but we want to be continuing to impress upon ourselves the, the understanding of what it means to be a healthy church. And so that's why we're in 1 Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy because uh, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in order to instruct him directly related to Timothy's service of the church in Ephesus. So this, this week we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. We're just going to take the whole chapter. We're going to look at a couple of keys in it uh, for us this morning. Um, and then we're going to do just a small recap. We're just going to recap very briefly some of the, the ideas and concepts that we've talked about, um, just so that we have those in our minds. Larry's got Bibles. If you need a Bible, throw your hand in the air, and Larry will bring you one. Nobody? Okay. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, too, at home, you can feel free to grab one and that, take that with you. That could be our gift to you as well. So, okay, so let's, let's read this text together. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. We'll just read the whole chapter here this morning. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will, will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must, be, must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine confirming, or conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which envy, or which would arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by content. For we have brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed 
and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of good, a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Okay. There's a big chunk of text that we're taking this morning. We're looking at this, this whole chapter, but there's just a couple things that I want to key on this morning. So I'm going to give you our big idea this morning. We're going to play off that for a while, and then, like I said, we're going to draw some conclusions out of the book based on what we've seen so far uh, in our study in 1 Timothy. I think we've been in here nine weeks now, and so this is week nine, and we're going to, we're going to draw a few conclusions that are important for us as a body um, so that we might go out and do what God has called us to and act as a, as a body of Christ, as a family, as those who uh, have a common identity in Jesus. Okay, so the big idea this morning is this, and I'm really drawing this from, from verse 6, where Paul writes, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So the big idea is just simply this, sort of just a rehashing of that godliness, which is the result of sound doctrine, coupled with contentment, bears gospel fruit in the life of the individual in the church. Godliness, coupled with contentment, bears gospel fruit in the life of the individual and the church. Um, and so, before we before we kind of like break down some of those verses that, that are in that in that in that in that section of text, there, I just, I just want to point out something, a couple of things actually, to us this morning to kind of get us in the correct headspace to move that direction, right? So, just a, an important note is this. The gospel is how God has reconciled uh, all things to himself. God, the, the gospel is how God has reconciled all things to himself and is reconciling all things to himself. He, is, he has both reconciled and is reconciling all things to himself. So this is both a personal and a global activity, right? This is happening in the life of the believer. God has, has sent his son to die on our behalf personally so that we might know and have communion and have relationship with God the Father. Uh, but then it's also, uh, Scripture tells us like in Romans 8, that God is also redeeming all things, that everything is coming under, uh, under his purview, that everything, the way that he originally intended things, although um, it falls under the curse of sin, creation is being redeemed and being brought under uh, the heading of what God intends for us. So God sent his son to die on our behalf so that we could personally have this uninhibited relationship with him, no longer inhibited by sin, but, but direct access to God the Father, but he's also restoring creation to what he originally intended by dealing with the curse of sin. He's doing that in the person of Jesus Christ. That's happening. It's ongoing. It's not, it hasn't ended. It wasn't a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing that God is doing. So what we want to think about then this morning is how, how sin affects us, right? 
I think oftentimes we think about sin, we just think about direct opposition and activity uh, directly um, opposed to who God is. But, but I want to I point this out for us this morning because I think this is really important for us as we get into an understanding of what godliness is related to sound doctrine and gospel truth, but then also related to contentment, which Paul says is an important component, right? So sin is sinful, right? Sin is sinful because it takes what God has intended for something or for humanity and fixes that on something else, right? It takes like, so, so we talked about our purpose here, and we've talked about that a lot. What is our purpose? We often go through life and we say, what's God's will for my life? And, and we, we labor over that question. It's very clear in Scripture what God's will is for everyone, um, everyone that's created all of humanity, is to bring God glory and to enjoy Him forever. It's simple. It's a simple and profound truth. We are created to bring God glory. That's God's will for us. How that flushes itself out in, in our daily lives might look very different. But for us, as people, as people created in God's image, our primary purpose is to bring God glory and to enjoy Him forever. So what happens is we take and we take something, something that God created, and when we make it fundamentally about us, we make it fundamentally about who we are and not about who God is. So we no longer acknowledge what God has done for us, but we take it and we turn it inward and we say, this is about me this is about who I am. And so instead of taking and saying sin is something that's directly opposed to who God is, or it might look like something that's directly opposed to God, it's really just a perversion of God's intention for something. And in a way that's an opposition, but in a way it's far more nuanced than we, than we take and we, we oftentimes realize. So we've taken, taken and fixed the glory that's due to God, we've fixed it on ourselves, um, and we often are usurping God in His pursuit of glory by putting those, or putting ourselves in, in the place of God. So, um, just practically then, what does that look like? Practically, what does that look like? We, we, go, we go to work, we put in 40 or 50 or 60 hours of work in a week, and, and then we talk about how much we did, and we, we focus that, we take that and focus that on ourselves, instead of saying, um, God, who created me, uh, put in um, seven days of work and created all things by the word of his power. It's simple. It's, that's what that's pointing to. We as beings who are created to work, we are pointing to the fact that God worked in creating all things in a short amount of time with very little effort, only a word. Or another practical example, we talk about sustaining our children. If we have young children, we talk about sustaining our children by feeding them and changing their diapers and, and making sure uh, that they're getting sleep and that their cognitive development, is, they're stimulated and all of those things. When God literally sustains everything in the universe, every second, every moment of every day, 46 billion light years across the universe, He's sustaining everything all of the time. That's what that's pointing to. God has given us resources. He's given us things. Like he's given us children or, or various things so, so that we might manage those and steward those to point to the fact that God has given us something great. And that He is doing something great. And then we, we look back in the Old Testament and we see in Exodus chapter 20 when God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, the very first one He says is... is, is um, um, that we should have no other gods before him. 
But this is where I'm going with this. We take our good gifts, the good gifts that God has given us. We take money, we take work, we take sex, we take relationships, and we turn those things into a me-focused event instead of a God-glorifying portrait. So consider this. Okay, so maybe this will help get at what I'm, what I'm talking about here. This is just an example uh, that I came up with this week. So say, say that you go to an art gallery. You go to an art gallery, you see a beautiful painting, and it just speaks to you, and, and you look at it, and you say, this is, this is phenomenal. It's a landscape. It's beautiful. And you look at that painting, you fall in love with it, and you buy it. And then you fixate on it, and you continue to obsess over it. You take it home, and you hang it on your wall, and you look at it constantly all of the time. And it sort of becomes almost like a reality for you. You're looking at it and just hoping, wishing that that was, what, that was a reality. Looking at it and just saying, this picture is so beautiful, this painting, this artist is phenomenal. Looking at it and just fixating all of your attention on this portrait. Um, and you have an opportunity to observe and participate then. When, when you look at that portrait, you think to yourself, man, if I could only participate in what's being portrayed here. I can only participate in what this picture is portraying. But what, what the picture is portraying is something that you have an opportunity to participate and observe in, in actual nature. It's a landscape. You can, you can go outside and look at what it is. And even more than that, as you're fixated on the as you're fixated on the portrait, you could have just looked out your back window or your back door, your sliding glass door, and seen that this portrait is just a picture of your backyard. It's just a picture of your backyard. Not realizing that you need to fully experience what you see in your backyard. You decide that the painting is the greatest possible good. Your peace and joy and contentment can be found in obsessively looking at that piece, longing for what is contained with it. But it's just it's in your backyard. And so this, I think, this is the nature of sin. And I think this is how God um, is teaching us about who we are in His Word. We take the things that God has given us and we make them primary, like this picture that's hanging in your, in your house. We make them primary rather than the portrait. We take the things that God has given us and make them primary rather than a portrait. So as we, as we get to this text, Paul's going to give us a very specific example as well. He's going to give us the, the example of money. He's saying, this, you're making money, uh, you're making it primary when it's actually a portrait of something that God has done and who God is. And so the nature then of sin, and as Paul is unpacking this for us, is a perversion then of an intent. It's a perversion of what God has intended for us. And a restoration of the intent is the result of gospel impact, a glimpse and a hope of spending eternity in the presence of God. So for us, as we look up to a text, and even as we've been moving throughout 1 Timothy, we've seen so often that Paul rests his arguments on the importance of gospel impact in the life of the believer. So every time he gives us a line list, every time he tells us something, that we as a people need to be doing and participating in. What he's not saying is, here's a list of things, go modify your behavior. We talked about this. Or even as we watched in the video this morning, um, what you're not doing is, is taking it and memorizing that list and then never participating in it. What you're doing, what Paul is saying is that the, the understanding and the knowledge that of what God has done for you in Jesus 
is the thing that prompts you and moves you dramatically to live a life that's impacted by that truth. Um, and, and he bases his argument on that time and time again. He doesn't come to the qualifications for leaders in the church and start to think about, okay, so you've got to do this, this, and this, and this. And they say, these are the duties and the obligations that you have to do. He's saying, these qualifications that you see laid out here in this text exist because you have an understanding of what God has done for you in Jesus, and not vice versa. So the restoration of intent, then, is a result of gospel impact, right? So God is, like we said at the outset, he is taking everything, he's reconciling everything to himself through uh, the work of Jesus on the cross, and he's restoring what was originally intended, and that's a result of the impact of this truth, and then it gives us a glimpse of the hope that we have in the resurrection and spending an eternity in the presence of God. So when we get then to chapter 6 and we see Paul talking about doctrine, I think that's a word in our culture or in our society. We kind of like bristle a little bit when we hear the word doctrine. All Paul is saying when he's saying doctrine is having a good understanding of what it is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All he's saying is, what, there are people who are coming, even at the outset, the very beginning of this book, Paul urged Timothy to, to maintain, to put out the people who are preaching false doctrines and false gospels. And what he's saying to them is, no longer do, can you come to this understanding that you can be saved by something that you do, but only by what has been done for you and accomplished completely, totally, and utterly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says good doctrine, sound doctrine, what he's saying to us is this is gospel truth. We need to be rooted in the understanding that we in and of ourselves have no power to save ourselves, but that we rely wholly on God for salvation. So then the positive outworking of this is rooted in the ability to understand and abide by the commands that God has given to us in Scripture, primarily to have no other God before Him. The only way to abide by that command is to have the Spirit of Christ take up residence in us, and as a result of the grace of God, move you from a place where you are radically depraved, totally and incapable of being obedient to what God has called you to do, uh, to a place where you now have been made alive and are being made, constantly being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, you now possess the ability to adhere to the commands of the Scripture. These are spirit-empowered commands. Even then, this is oftentimes just simply not good enough. We fall short, right, in, in our in our in our lives, we, we show up to, to do whatever it is that we do on a regular basis, to work, to our family, to spend time together, we're constantly, continually falling short. And so we wholly trust on Jesus as the one who lived in perfect obedience, and that right standing before God that comes as a result of obedience is transferred then to us as we trust Christ. It's no longer about us, it's about Him and what He has done and what He has granted to us. Okay. So that's a big, like, sort of aside, and I think that we need to have that conversation, because again, I think we come to this idea, we come to sin, 
so uh, in, in such a way that we think to ourselves, well, it's only the big things that I do. It's the murder, the, the, uh, the, the infidelity, the, the, the adultery that I come to. And, and we, do, we very frequently think about the fact that we do things in our lives with the wrong intent many, many times. What we need is to have that intent restored um, and to adhere to the commands of Jesus um, in a specific way, in the way that he calls us to with a heart that's in uh, in uh, or in uh, posture towards him. So let's think then, as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's think then about what Paul is talking about, particularly if we go to verse 6. But godliness actually is means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And it's really important that he says when accompanied by contentment, right? So a few weeks ago we, we took an assignment and talked about the affections. Um, remember, remember when we talked about the affections? We said that the affections are stirred for Jesus. When, I, when, it, when, when the affections are stirred for Jesus, that drives us to joy and peace and contentment and who he is and what he's done for us. And Paul even chooses this idea of contentment here to couple with godliness, right? And he says it's a means of great gain. So godliness is a life that acts in accordance with sound words, the doctrine spoken by Jesus. If you back up to verse 3, he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, He's saying that these are the words, right? These are the words that come directly from Jesus. For Paul, that's a doctrine that trusts Jesus exclusively for salvation. This is not a self-generated righteousness. This is a righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. And the, the, the opposition was clear for Paul. There would have been people in, in Ephesus, both who were saying, no, you need to add to what Jesus has done. You need to bring about good works in order that, that you, might, uh, you might supplement what God has done for you. Paul says, no, that's wrong. We also saw that, that, that Timothy was probably battling some, some form of asceticism, which basically is just like self-denial for the sake of self-denial in order that you might uh, generate some righteousness. But Paul is saying none of those are none of those are the case. But a righteous but righteousness can only come through replacing ourself or replacing our trust in ourselves and placing it on Jesus. That's the only way that righteousness can come about. And that is a life of godliness that is coupled with contentment. So if we're trusting ourselves, we're going to be. Uh, uh, we're not going to be content uh, with what we have in our world. But if we're trusting Jesus, then we will be content with the things that he has granted to us. And so Paul takes aim at the heart here. Paul takes aim in the heart, especially in verses 6 through 10. Let me read that for us again. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare in many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul is taking direct aim at the heart, and the quickest way to do that, and it's true in our world too, 
the quickest way to do that is to talk about finances. Let's talk about money. Because that's the thing that we, Jesus said very specifically, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. He knew that that was the dichotomy that would be set up in our world. Um, and he understood that, that more than anything, money sat at the, at the heart and, and, and pierced. Even like Paul says, piercing ourselves with many griefs by, by spending and being consumed with finances. I mean, he says very clearly in verse 7, you, you, you didn't bring it in, and you can't take it out. You didn't bring it in, and you can't take it out. We hear that sort of as a cliche a lot of times in our, in our world, um, but it's the truth. Paul writes it here, this is, this is God's word. Um, and, then, and then you just ask this question, why aren't you content with the basics? Um, scripture teaches us that, that God takes care of the least of his creation. The very least of his creation is, is regularly cared for. Um, and you ask, why are you worrying about essentials like clothing and food? God has this covered. He has this covered. You are created in his image. Um, he intends to take care of you in a specific way. But for some, it's not just the basics. For some of us, it's like the accumulation, the constant accumulation of things. And this is where Paul begins to get at, at the heart, right? He says, um, cars and boats and vacations and electronics, we, we place our, the hope of our contentment in these things. We constantly do that. We, if I can continue to accumulate things in my world, if I can continue to accumulate these things, I'll be content. If I just had X, if I just had Y, um, then I would be content. Okay, so, so this drives us back into our earlier conversation where we were talking about the perversion of intent. Right? That, that God has created all of these things for our enjoyment and our, our benefit, but as a portrait pointing to who he is and not as primary in order to bring ourselves glory or to find contentment or rest in it. So it's not bad to have the desire to have things. What's wrong is to recognize or think that those things are ends in and of themselves. What's right is to take those things and thank God for what he has given you and say, this is God's blessing on my life. I do not find my joy in this. I do not find my peace in this. I do not find my contentment in this. But I find that in, in Jesus Christ. This desire is a God-given one. But this is the biggest deception, one of the biggest deceptions in our world, um, which is a result of the sin and sinfulness, is that something other than God like cars and boats and, and vacations, um, or electronics can provide you with any sort of contentment. And, and Jesus knew that, right? Jesus knew that. He knew our propensity to take these things and to make them primary. Um, and that's why he focuses so much. Jesus, the topic that Jesus talked about more than anything else in the New Testament, Jesus in the four Gospels, is money. He talks about it all the time because he knew it was so interconnected with the heart. He knew that we would take something like money. He knew that we'd take the gifts that he'd given us and use that to pursue our joy and our peace and contentment. And so he said very simply, he said, where your treasure is, there, that, that's where your heart is too. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is as well. And what he meant is that if you treasured things here on earth, your affection would fall in line with those things and not value God. But if you value God above all else, your affections would drive you to Him and not to those material things. 
And for some of us, even in this room, it might not be material. Um, we might not have those things. But this is a stand-in, right? Paul is using money, specifically talking to this context. For some of, it, some of us, it's just, it's just understanding the accumulation of knowledge. Especially in a, in a world that we live where we have instant access to everything, the accumulation of knowledge can become, in a way, uh, this very thing. We can pursue our joy and our contentment and our peace in, in accumulating knowledge. Or just being proficient in particular activities. You can't put a dollar amount on those things. I mean, maybe you can if you can get paid for it. But, but you, can't, you can't necessarily put a dollar amount on those things. But at the same time, what we're doing is saying, no longer do I need God, but what I need is to, is to have more knowledge. I need to have more things. I need to be invested in this way in my world in order that I might have joy, that I might have peace, that I might have contentment. And so this is, this is the crux of it, right? This is what we're driving towards. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. When we take what God has given us, the good gift that God has given us, and intended to be a portrait rather than primary, and take that and put it out there and say, this is an end. This exists as an end to bring me joy, to bring me contentment, and to bring me peace. And God is saying, no. That is not what this is about. And this is why Paul writes in, in verse 6, Godliness actually means a great gain when accompanied by contentment. No longer, am I con no longer am I driven to pursue things, but I am content in what God has given me because I recognize that they are pictures of His goodness. So Paul writes to Timothy that if contentment is sought in money, then you will be ruined. He writes that in, in verse 10, which is oftentimes a misquoted verse, right? For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Oftentimes you hear it said, uh, money is the root of all sorts of evil. Absolutely not. Money is a gift from God given to us to steward properly, again, as a picture to point us to Him and not to be used uh, for our own purposes. What Paul doesn't say is if you have money, you will be ruined. What he does say is if you love money, you will be ruined. If you place your, 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 uh, your desire for peace and joy and contentment in money, if you place it on that, then you will be, you will ultimately be ruined. Again, it's taking a gift of God and from placing your affections and joy and peace and contentment in that gift and not on the giver. So it's a perversion of the intent, right? This is what we're driving at. This is a perversion of the intent. God created man to steward the resources he gave, but, he, but man took those resources and made them about him rather than about bringing God glory. And this is what happened in the garden, right? In, in Genesis 3, this is what happened in the garden. God said to Adam, here, take these things and be in charge of them according to my purpose. Exercise dominion over these things. And Adam said, I'd rather use those purposes, or those for my own purposes and for my good than for the glory of God. And what Adam didn't understand is that when God's purposes are filled, it results in our greatest good. And that's the deception here, Right? When we look and we pursue money to find our peace and joy and contentment, when we look at uh, external things or knowledge or the accumulation of social status or whatever that is, 
Um, what we're saying is, is, is I want that for myself, but what we don't realize, what we don't recognize is that um, actually setting those things aside and saying, thank you, God, for putting those things here in order to point me to who you are, that results in our greatest good and not the pursuit of those things. And that's what's happening here in this text and, and probably happening and cropping up for the life of the Ephesian church, right? Um, that's what's happening here according to Paul. They're taking their God-given resources. We, start, we can see this played out for us in 17 through 19, right? He, he tells Timothy to instruct the rich not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But he instructs them to do good, to uh, be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. So what Paul is saying here, and what, what may be happening, is he's giving, uh, he's, said, he's telling uh, Timothy that taking God-given resources and like money and believing that we should use it to pursue our own joy or satisfaction or contentment rather than thanking God for the gift that it is and acting as those who understand that we brought nothing in and we can take nothing out. That's what he's communicating to Timothy here. And that's what he's communicating indirectly to us as well. And Paul points out the practical application then of fleeing from an incorrect understanding of the role of finances in the life of the believer. Um, he's saying if you're a financial means, don't be conceited. He's saying don't put your hope in money, but rather be generous and be ready to share. And so just very simply, like practically, what does that look for, like for us? Like we asked last week, so what? So what, Paul? What are we looking at here? So what? Um, very simply, I'm just going to give you some practical examples, okay? Um, for our world, for 2016. What if it was just time to buy a vehicle, and you, and you come to that vehicle and you said, what if we bought one a couple years older, or with a few, a few thousand more miles, um, and saved a little bit of money and gave the difference away? Like, what if we did that? What if we thought that way? Um, what, if we, what if we had two vacations planned for the year, but we skipped one, and, and we gave uh, the money away? Um, what if we cut back at eating at restaurants and put the money aside to help hurting, hurting people within our faith family? What if we did that? What if, there, what if we knew people who were needy, and instead of saying we're eating out once a week, we said we're only eating out once every, once every month, and use those finances to help people in our faith family who are hurting? And so, okay, so, uh, warning, um, something that you may hear me, hear, hear me have said, and what I don't want you to hear me say is that, we, that I think that we shouldn't buy quality vehicles or, um, or eat out or do those sorts of things or take vacations, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can, should consider where we find our contentment. If you think that a vacation, if you think that a vehicle with um, 100,000 miles and not 110,000 miles is going to bring you more contentment, because you might have to do less frequent maintenance on it, you're wrong. That's not where your contentment is found. And for pursuing godliness by seeking to understand the gospel more and more daily as a family and a community. <coughs> and, if it, and if contentment and godliness is of great gain, this is the way that we'll act. These are the practical outworkings of those who have been affected by the gospel. We should, as a faith family, look to and prompt one another to continue to, 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 to live out um, gospel impact regularly together.
Okay, so just as we kind of looked at this text this morning, something that's really important for us to, to see is that contentment and godliness, like these are coupled together in order that we might recognize that, that these things are given to us as portraits and not as primary in our world. Okay, so I want to move on then and just think through just for a, a couple of minutes, just, just a couple of minutes, just six statements that, that I constructed just that are recurring ideas and themes as we've moved through 1 Timothy. And these are important for us as a faith family. We need to think and, 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 and dwell on these things. So I would, I would encourage you to write them down and meditate on them and think about them throughout the course of the week. Maybe go back through 1 Timothy and consider what Timothy has written, or what Paul has written to Timothy, uh, and that, so that we might continue to build on these ideas as we move forward as a church. So these are just six recurring ideas from 1 Timothy. First, um, this is coming right out of chapter 1. Sound doctrine that the church should work to protect is the truth of the gospel. This is sound doctrine. This is, not, this is nothing that is, uh, that is out there for us. We're not thinking about anything crazy here. When we hear the word doctrine, like I said earlier, we might bristle a little bit. It's not a dirty word. It just means the truth of the gospel and maintaining the purity in that. So first, sound doctrine is the, that the church should work to protect is the truth of the gospel. And then almost inversely, right, almost on the flip side, number two, sound doctrine, which is the truth of the gospel, protects the church. So we need to fight to preserve and to protect sound doctrine in our midst, fight to maintain the purity of the gospel that, that, uh, that uh, we find uh, we find our uh, salvation in Christ alone, that it's by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves. We need to protect that with all of our might, right? We do not compromise on that, and in turn, that truth protects the church. It protects the church because Jesus Christ is the truth, and he's the truth incarnate. Okay, the third one, adhering to the truth of the gospel results in godliness. This comes directly from our text this morning. Um, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Paul even outlines for us how how people who are who are in direct opposition to the words of Jesus Christ that's that's false doctrine. That's that's incorrect. But adhering to the truth of the gospel and bathing in that and spending time in that truth regularly is the result or will result in, in for us, will result in godliness. Okay, so number four. Together, together, as a people together, we should continually be looking for practical ways to live out the truth of the gospel. We talked about gospel fluency. We talked about uh, taking the gospel and applying it to every area of our lives. And, and in a lot of ways, it's hard for us to see how the gospel intersects with our world. And we need each other, right? We need each other to be prompting, uh, prompting one another to uh, be looking for practical ways to live out the truth of the gospel together. Uh, number five, we should work to prompt one another to find our joy, peace, and contentment in Jesus. This is directly from our text this morning as well. If we, as a people, um, if we enable each other to seek joy and peace and contentment in other things, this, this will result in some of the hardest conversations that you will ever have. I guarantee it. 
This will result in some of the hardest conversations that you'll ever have because this is what it means to hold one another accountable. This is what it means to point one another to the truth of who Jesus is and to say, um, um, you know what, brother? I don't think that in this situation, everything that you told me is hard and I affirm that. Everything that's going on in your world might be, might be crumbling, but right now in this moment, you need to find your joy, your peace, and your contentment in who God is for you in Jesus Christ. It will result in hard conversations, but it is absolutely essential for the church to participate together. Okay. And then six, and finally, this kind of comes from what we talked about uh, last week, um, and then what we talked about maybe four or five weeks ago when we were looking at chapter three. Uh, number six is this. The leaders of the local church should set the pace when it comes to practical living according to the gospel. The leaders of the local church should set the pace when it comes to practical living according to the gospel. We talked about modeling. We talked about being examples. Um, if we are in, and when I say leaders, I mean uh, the pastors and the elders, but also um, those who are in a place where you're actively discipling someone. We're actively living life together with another person in our faith family and living out in a way that, that they would see and, and understand what it means to do that. And remember, as we've talked throughout this entire process for, for the, like the last year, that we're all discipling someone. It just it doesn't matter what you're what what you're doing on a regular basis because someone is observing you, someone's observing your activity. And this is also why it's so essential for us to find our joy and our peace and our contentment in Jesus because we are modeling that for someone every single day. Okay, so those are the six things just sort of as a recap for us as we look at this book. Hope you have time to think through those this week and sort of process them. Um, if you have questions about any of those, I'll be available afterwards to talk through um, any of those things um, so that we can, we can think through those together. Okay. So just this morning then, um, as we wrap up, I just want to issue a bit of a warning that I see coming out of 1 Timothy as a whole. In verse 12 of chapter 6, Paul writes to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Um, and so, this is just sort of like a general warning for us, right? A general warning. I think a lot of times, especially for us now, we're, we're at some of this fundamental. So, so if you haven't been with us through this whole process, and this has been, we've been sort of doing this for almost a year now um, in community, and then when we launched our Sunday mornings in October, we've been doing um, what, what looks to be like pretty standard church. Um, but we're a church plant. We've been doing this for a while, and there's a lot of things that we hope to do in the near future. We hope to push out the edge. We're like, okay, so, so if, I wanna, if, if I was going to slap a percentage on it, probably because maybe this is just who I am, I'd put like 5%, like where we're at. And so if you come, if you maybe this is your first time here, maybe you've, maybe you've spent some weeks with us now, but if you look at this and say, well, this is a finished product, it's not. Like we want to be, and it's, that doesn't just mean blowing up the back of this place and adding more bodies. What it means is being active, doing life together, being a people who are constantly pouring into each other with the truth of the gospel in order that we might um, impact our community um, with the gospel. So, like, 5%, that might be, that might be a little hyperbolic, but for, from where I stand, I, I think that's where, about where we're at. So, what, what this is a warning to do, and as we're looking at 1 Timothy, obviously, um, Paul is writing to Timothy like, hey, and this is a church in Ephesus that had been established a lot longer than we have. This is a church in Ephesus that had been established a lot longer than we have. 
And, and Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's just saying, hey, you've got to keep pushing on these things. You've got to keep pushing on these things. But you can't go complacent. You can't, be, you can't be in a spot where you think everything is good and everything's going well. Like, that's okay to think that, but you can't exclusively think that. You need to continue to push on, um, push on these points, especially as it's related to the truth of the gospel, to protect, to guard that good, sound doctrine that's centered in the truth of the gospel, and to fight for joy and peace and contentment in Christ alone. Okay, so the warning then is this. We, we wake up on Sunday mornings, and, okay, so when we put on our pastel polos, and I don't even know what's wearing pastel polos. But we put that on, or we put on our, our shoes, and we come to church, and we, we, uh, we, we, we head to this building, and we begin, um, um, we begin to, to think and process, and our, our minds are reoriented for a short amount of time, but I've been reoriented throughout the course of our lives, because, because the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we fighting together to preserve the truth of gospel in our world, in our day-to-day -day life, regularly? And so lots of people make comparisons, and this is, this is where this might be a little hard, but I want you to hear me, that lots of people make comparisons between the wealth and lack of physical threat, the lack of physical threat we experience here in this context today. In Jamestown, North Dakota, in 2016, on June 12th, we faced very little physical threat when it comes to um, proclaiming the truth of the gospel and being those who seek to impact our community. So we draw comparisons between, the, between wealth and the lack of physical threat that we face in our context with freedom to practice religion freely. And then we draw that in, in uh, uh, comparison. We draw a comparison between that and then the context where death is a real possibility if you profess Christ. We draw that contest, contrast frequently. But, but even going back to what we talked about at the outset, even going back to what we talked about at the outset, isn't the threat of sin, and the deceptiveness of it, the same for us? Isn't the threat of the deceptiveness of sin the same for us? Whether it's lake homes or landmines, bank accounts or beheadings, Cadillacs or car bombs, the temptation to make the portrait, the primary, is the same. The, the, the temptation to make the portrait, the primary, is always the same. To elevate the things of this world above the person of Jesus Christ. Whether it's security, personal security, because you're under threat of personal harm. Or whether it's personal security because, um, because you, you, you think that there's some hooligan in your neighborhood who's going to smash your car windows. The, 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 the threat to elevate the portrait above the primary is always the same. And it manifests itself in personal security or social standing or whatever it might be in our world. Whatever that is. We talked about money today, but it could be relationships or sex or, or, um, or any of the things that we've, we've discussed. But this is it, okay? We've said this a lot. We have a common identity in Jesus Christ. And that's what sets us apart as the church. We have a common identity in Jesus Christ, and that's what sets us apart as the church. It ties us together in a way that nothing else can. And we're called to live according to that truth, to go from this place and to live according to that truth. Not live out of duty or obligation to things, laundry lists that we see, but to, um, but to, uh, but to live according to the truth, and a truth that is truthful. Because it's grounded in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. That's the truth of what we believe. We need to be doing that together. Let's pray.